So let's begin reading verse number 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. The Word of God says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this privilege tonight, together in your house, to preach your word. I pray that you'd make it effectual in the hearts of your people. Lord, that you'd speak to all of us. Father, that our hearts and our lives would be laid open before the searchlight of Scripture. And that when we leave this place, we would have drawn closer to you through surrender and obedience. Father, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want you to notice there again in verse number 17, the Lord says this, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate saith the Lord. Now, there we have the word separation. You hear preachers talk a lot about being separate from the world and uh, the principle of separation. I think uh, it's a good thing that preachers preach on. I think we ought to have more preaching on it. Not because we're better than anybody, uh, but because God has saved us and God makes a distinction. You know, you see that in the uh, book of Genesis. When God created uh, the heavens and the earth, first thing He did was He created light and then He separated the light from darkness. God makes a distinction about things. And uh, where God makes a distinction about things, I don't think we should ignore that distinction, do you? God doesn't give us anything that we don't need. God gives us only that which we do need. There will be some that would call us hate mongers for preaching the things that we'll preach tonight. Some would call us uh, legalists for preaching the things that we preach tonight. Uh, Some people would say that we're just cantankerous, don't like to get along, don't like to agree. And uh, all of those criticisms uh, will fall on deaf ears where it comes to God, because what God hath spoken is true. And so what we want to do tonight is just look at what the Bible says about separation. I want you to notice in verse number 14, the first thing we see is the principle of separation. And it's given to us in just a few words. God says this, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, what does God say there? He tells us two things. One, that we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You'll hear this preached a lot concerning uh, marriage. I believe it applies to marriage. I believe one of the greatest mistakes a person can make, a saved person can make, is to marry someone that is unsaved. Uh, Now, I understand sometimes people make those decisions. Sometimes God even gets glory out of it, and that lost spouse will get saved. I'm aware of that. God has a way taking our mistakes and and getting glory out of them. And and, uh, He's the fixer of our problems, and He's the mender of our broken hearts, and He's able to do that which we cannot. But it is scripturally irresponsible to not say that it is a bad idea for Christians to marry non-Christians. God definitely and specifically denotes in this passage, and there's no greater yoking in the experience of humanity than that of marriage, I know very little is made out of marriage in the day that we live in. And uh, I was hearing the other day someone was saying, you know, that, that for the first time in a long time in society, 
uh, that uh, one out of every two marriages doesn't end in divorce. And uh, the optimist will look at that and say, hey, we're getting more moral. And uh, the pessimist will look at that and say, well, that's a lie. That can't be true. I'm sort of a realist, and I think it's probably this. The reason that's so is less people are getting married in this day that we live in. Just living together and shacking up and ignoring what God says about the responsibility and the, and the blessing of marriage. Uh, but God still commands that we're to not be unequally yoked. But let me say that it goes further than just the marriage bed. It goes further than just marriage. Uh, it does not just simply say, be not married to unbelievers. I do think that's the most explicit example, being yoked together. But what is a yoke? We know what a yoke is. A yoke is something that would be put over donkeys or oxen or something of that effect, something that tie two people together for a common purpose, a common goal, something to achieve. Uh, they'd take that yoke and put it upon the necks of those oxen, and they couldn't depart one to the right and one to the left. They had to face the same thing. They had to have the same perspective. They had to have the same direction that they were going in. I believe what God's saying here is this. God doesn't say here, don't ever speak to a sinner. In fact, if God said, don't ever speak to a sinner, He'd be contradicting the very ministry of Christ and the mandate of Scripture. He's not saying don't speak to sinners. He's not saying don't love sinners. He's not saying don't even spend time around sinners because Christ spent time around sinners. Uh, one of the accusations that they gave is they said, this man receiveth sinful men. Now, I'm glad today that he received this sinful man I'm glad he has compassion. But God's not contradicting his word here. He doesn't say don't ever be around sinners. What he says is don't yoke yourself to them. In other words, don't see things the way they see them. Don't go in the same direction that they're going. Don't be tied to them in such a way that the same ditch they fall into is the same ditch you'll fall into. And I believe we live in a day where Christians do not practice this by and large. The average Christian probably has just as many very, very, very close lost friends as they do very, very, very close saved friends. I think that's dangerous to do that. I understand. We've, I've got lost family members, and I love them, and I'm going to love them the rest of my life, and I hope they get saved, and I'm going to spend time around them, and I should spend time around them. They're my family, and I love them, and I ought to try to reach them to the best of my ability. But it doesn't change the fact that I'm to use wisdom and discretion in the relationships that I formulate with the people around me. And uh, there's no question that there are some things that it's just unwise for a, a saved person to look to a lost person for. Can I give you an example? Just real quick. I won't give you a hundred, but I'll give you one or two. I don't believe it's wise for a saved person to look to lost people to give them counsel. Do you? I believe that's unwise. The Bible says that, uh, that the wisdom that cometh from above is pure and peaceable and righteous. That's the kind of wisdom we ought to seek. I don't believe we ought to go to lost people to try to get, to get uh, counsel and to try to get understanding and wisdom about a matter. There ain't no telling how many Christians whose Christianity is a mile wide and a quarter inch deep get all of their wisdom and all their counsel uh, from a bunch of lost TV show hosts. Well, that's unwise. That's unwise to do that. I think this. I think though we ought to love lost people and though we ought to try to reach lost people and though we ought to even have friendships with lost people, I would say this, that there is a boundary that we should not allow ourselves to cross with a lost person. And let me say this. We ought to always keep in mind our testimony with those around us that are lost and on their way to hell. They see in us the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'm not sure if they do. Oh, they do. They see, they see Christ in you. The question is, what do they see about Christ in you? Uh, so I think there is sometimes we all have faults and failures. I'm not saying be a hypocrite. I'm not saying be secretive. 
But understand that oftentimes the people that are closest to you in your life, they're going to see you at moments of weakness. They're going to see you at moments of discouragement. And uh, I believe we have a responsibility with our testimony to those around us. And so I think those are a couple ways that we ought to not be unequally yoked and a couple of examples. I've heard people say sometimes, well, you ought not go into business with a lost person. And I, I think a lot of times it depends on the nature of the business and what that means. When I worked on a, on a public job, uh, I worked with lost folks. I worked with mostly lost folks. Uh, even those that professed Christ, I had some questions about. <laughs> Not that they answered to me, but I had some questions about. I, I don't think it means never do business with lost people. I don't think it means I never go into business with a lost person. But I think it means this. Understand when you do make those commitments, the commitment you're making. So God, God gives us a directive here when He gives us this principle. But notice that God makes a distinction. He says unequally. Now, that's God's words. That's not my words. There's some out here in, in these progressive churches that would have us believe that that's unkind to say that we're unequal with unbelievers. But that's what God says. And I think one of the great tragedies in the church today is we make little of the change that Jesus Christ makes. We make little of the distinction between being lost and being saved. And uh, I understand sometimes when we ask prayer for family members and we'll say, well, you know, I, I just, I hope they, I hope they're okay. Or we'll say, I hope they grow closer to the Lord. And I understand I've got lost family members that I don't know what their spiritual condition is. And sometimes that necessitates that kind of language. But everybody in this world is either lost or saved. One of the two. God makes a distinction there. He created the light and He separated the light from the darkness. He didn't say, well, everything just sort of looks like dusk to me. He said there's light and there's darkness and there's a difference between the two and He separated those. And in the same way, God says if you're saved, there's a difference between you and the lost person. And for you to be yoked with them, you're unequally yoked. Uh, you can imagine, if you will, sort of the word picture. You can imagine how difficult it'd be if you were to put a yoke that was unequal upon two different oxen where one side of it was lower than the other side. Maybe if, it, if they were by themselves and had that yoke on and the other side was empty, you couldn't tell it. But you put two oxen together and uh, one side of the yoke is a little lower than the other side of the yoke. One of them ox is going to be awful uncomfortable. One of them is going to have problems. And let me tell you something. I can tell you right now who it's going to be that's going to have the problem. Lost people are going to go on doing what lost people are going to do. But you're going to be like Lot. You're going to vex your righteous soul in the things that you hear and see and experience. So there's a principle here of separation. And I think it is fair to say that it is a scriptural principle. We're not hateful people for acknowledging that scriptural principle. doesn't mean we don't have compassion because we acknowledge that, that principle. I don't think there's anybody has more compassion than God has. I think our concept of compassion is but a dim shadow of His concept of compassion. And it's God Himself that commands this. And Paul makes no uh, qualms about it. He says, thus saith the Lord. This is a directive from God. God's made a distinction. Well, what's the premise of that? Why does that have to be so? Well, we see the principle of separation, but notice the premise of separation. Look at the end of verse 14. In fact, we're going to read four different things, four or five different things here, that God gives to show us why this is necessary. Now, let me tell you something. If, it's enough for God to give us a commandment. God doesn't have to explain Himself. He's God. He could have just said, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He could have left it there. And you and I would have had enough information to know what to do. We've got a gracious God, and He goes even a step further, and He, he sort of uh, takes into account yours and my ignorance about things. And, and so He gives us some examples. And look what He says. Notice the first thing. He says, For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? 
Now notice what he says there. Righteousness with unrighteousness. You see this all through the Scripture. Uh, but can I give you an example as it relates to, to speech? You know what James said about this? He, he likened the, the tongue and the mouth to a fig tree that can't bring forth thorns and figs at the same time. Or to a fountain that can't bring forth bitter water and sweet water at the same time. And God says this in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. In fact, it's at the end of the chapter right before this. Uh, the Bible says this, For he, speaking of God, hath made him, speaking of Christ, to be sin for us, meaning you and I, who, uh, who knew no sin, speaking of Christ, that we, that's you and I, might be made the righteousness of God in him, meaning Christ Jesus. In other words, when you got born again, you became the righteousness of God. Now, that's lofty language. But you only became the righteousness of God because you were given Jesus Christ's righteousness. And when you were given Jesus Christ's righteousness, then all of a sudden, because He's the righteousness of God, we became the righteousness of God. And you know what I think Paul is trying to say here and what the Lord by way of Paul is trying to say? He's trying to say this. Understand that as a believer, you are an example in this world of what God's standard of right and wrong is. One of the sad truths about the church nowadays is, is that we have allowed so many moral gray areas. Me and Brother Charlie were talking about this the other day. You hear people say all the time, well, the Bible has gray areas. No, if the Bible is interpreted dispensationally, which is the right way to interpret the Bible, if you have a dispensational framework, the way you read the Word of God, there are no gray areas in the Word of God. It's black and white. It's clear and it's distinct. But because of the testimony of so many Christians, uh, can I give you an example? People look at it and they say, well, uh, I guess the marriage bed is not all that important to Christians because look at how many Christians uh, will live together outside of it. Well, I, I guess that, that having a good testimony is not so important to God because look how many Christians have poor testimonies. Guess, and, and I promise I'm not fussing at you. I'm not going to fuss at the Wednesday night crowd about not coming to church. Amen. Uh, but they look at the way Christians, many of them attend the house of God. They say, well, I guess it must not be very important. And so your testimony is a reflection of God's standard of what is right and what is wrong. And the Lord says this, What business does God's standard of right and wrong have with that which is purely wrong? That which is purely wrong. So we're the righteousness of God. Notice the second thing that he says. He says, And what communion hath light with darkness? Listen to what it says. This is a few verses, but I think you'll be patient with me. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 through verse 8 says this, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be ye not therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Man, do you know when you got born again, you got brought into the light. You got translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Things weren't dark anymore. All of a sudden, you could see what you were and you could see who God was. You could see what you had been. You could see what He had made you to become. And all of a sudden, things are brought into the light. But let me go a step further than that and say this. Christ told this parable, said that you and I, we're like a city that's set on a hill, and you and I, we're the light uh, that doesn't need to be hidden under a bushel. In other words, you and I are a testimony. 
We're a testimony. And uh, when people look at us, you know what Christ said? He said, I'm the light of the world as long as I'm in the world. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. In other words, there'd come a day when he wouldn't be in the world in the way that he was then. He's not in the world now like he was then. He's not walking the streets of Galilee. He's not walking through Jerusalem. He's not doing miracles there uh, in Israel. But you and I now, we're the light of the world. And that's what he said. Ye are the light of the world. We're also the salt of the earth. And we have a responsibility to be different from this wicked world that we live in. And so there's a, almost an interesting example given there because he said, well, what communion hath light with darkness? Uh, you know, you, you only have two things. It's either light or darkness. Uh, I remember one time I, went, I took uh, my wife to the... We wasn't married then. You say, you dated before you was married? Well, I wasn't going to marry someone I hadn't dated. Amen? And uh, we might have even held hands. You don't know. You're going to run me out for that, I guess. I don't know if that's in the pamphlets on courtship, but we did. We held hands, I know. Uh, but uh, we went down to the Lost Sea. And I know you've been down to the Lost Sea because there ain't that much to do in East Tennessee, so you've probably been down there. And uh, we were going through the Lost Sea. I didn't know at this time that my wife was terrifyingly claustrophobic. Uh, but I decided that the most romantic thing me and her could do would be to go 150 feet down into the earth and uh, go through the Lost Sea. But she is very gracious. She didn't let me know, you know. So we, we went down in the Lost Sea. And you come to this place in the Lost Sea where they tell you you're about to experience absolute darkness. They say if you've got a cell phone, keep it in your pocket. If you've got a watch with a light on it, cover it up. And they turn the lights off. And friend, you've never felt darkness like you feel there. It is darkness so thick that it is palpable. Now that's total darkness. But let me ask you something. If you were to light a candle in that total darkness, that wouldn't be total darkness anymore, would it? You see, light and darkness are totally and utterly uh, separated and cannot, that separation cannot be compromised either. They are contrary one to the You know why? Because darkness is really nothing but the, abs- uh, the absence of light. The absence of light. And so what God says here in this passage is that your light, something's been put into your life. The Lord Jesus Christ shines in you. The lost person, I, I don't, it doesn't matter what other religions say. I know uh, the, the Amish, and I don't know this because I have a beard either, but the, the Amish believe in this inner light that's in every man. The Bible does not teach that every man has an inner light within them. The Bible teaches that when a person's not born again, they are total and utter darkness. In fact, Christ uh, spoke this parable. He talked about your eye being single. And He said that if the light that is within you uh, is dark, how great is that darkness? And let me say that a lost person morality, the best light they can offer is still darkness. And if you're uh, yoked up with an unbeliever, then your light yoked up with darkness, and that doesn't mix. Notice the next thing. What does he say in verse number 15? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Belial, in this context in particular, is another name for Satan. You'd hear all through the Old Testament they talk about sons of Belial. Belial was actually in the Old Testament a name of a false god, but it also referred to Satan. Do you know that you and I, when we've been born again, we become part of the body of Christ? Uh, Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Man, let me tell you something. And this is why I don't think we should make light of church membership. I understand that membership to a local body is but a reflection of membership to His body. But man, let me tell you this. When you get born again, it's a big deal that you become a part of the church of the living God. That's a big deal. 
The church of the living God. And I don't just mean Walridge Baptist Church, but I mean the church as we speak of it in a spiritual sense. Man, that's the body of Christ. That's the instrument and means of God working in this world with Christ as its head and you and I as members in particular. And listen to what he says. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Paul talked about this in the book of Romans, and I believe chapter number 6, when he said uh, that whomsoever ye yield your body instruments to, uh, to, his, uh, to him are ye servants. Uh, and he said that you and I were to yield our members as instruments of righteousness, not as instruments of unrighteousness. Man, do you realize that when we yoke up with unbelievers, when we walk the way they walk, see things the way they see things, uh, take them as our bosom companions, when we all of a sudden identify ourselves with lost people, we are implying that Christ and Satan would walk the same path. Why, if a person was really to say that, we'd count that blasphemy. I wonder how many of us through our testimonies we've blasphemed the Lord in that respect. Look at verse number 16. I'll give you one more. The Bible says, "...in what agreement hath the temple of God with idols?" With idols. And lest we wonder what he's saying, he says, "...for ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." As you go through the Old Testament, the chief sin that God judged Israel for was always idolatry. In fact, all the way up until the Babylonian exile, idolatry was something they struggled with. From the moment that God uh, sat down on Sinai and gave His law and they fashioned a golden calf and they said, these be the gods that brought us out of Egypt, all the way down to the place where they were worshiping the gods of the Canaanites and the Phoenicians and God had to judge them and smite them and lead them into exile, Israel struggled with idolatry. You and I, we don't live in a day of conventional idolatry in this culture, in this country. I don't know very many people. Now, the Roman Catholics, uh, they pray to crucifixes and with prayer beads and things of that sort. That's what I'd call pure idolatry. Uh, I, I think it's sort of a form of idolatry when the Muslim kneels down and prays towards Mecca. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, most folks don't have idols in the sense of a small little figurine or statue sitting in their home that they pray to. But idolatry is not confined just to classical and understanding of idolatry. But anything that we place above the Lord Jesus Christ is an idol in our life. And God says it this way. He says, you're the temple of God. You're the place where God dwells. I mean, all the glory that He vested in the temple in the Old Testament, He vests in you uh, that Christ in you is the hope of glory. He says, when you walk together with unbelievers, what you're doing is you're allowing idols into the temple of God. You're allowing things to take their play, uh, to take a place above the Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives us these four or five things as a premise to illustrate to us this principle of separation. But now here's the question. What's the process of separation? Okay, preacher, I understand I'm to be separate. I'm to be different. How do I go about doing that? Well, God explains it to us. Look at verse 17. We see three things that are set forth to us. The Bible says, number one, wherefore come out from among them. First off, there's some removing that has to take place. There's some folks, now listen carefully now, we need to try to reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ. We do. But I say this not just to young people, but to each and every person under the sound of my voice. There's some people that you as a Christian, you don't need in your life. They're going to pull you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that you throw your shoe at them and spit on them and, and call them a name and burn a bridge. I'm not saying that. You need to always keep a bridge to the gospel open to the best of your ability. 
But understand that as far as that close relationship is concerned, there's some folks that you just don't need in your life. There's folks I don't need in my life. They don't pull me closer to Christ. They pull me further away from Christ. You say, but preacher, I want to try to help them. You and I both know it don't ever work that way, does it? Don't ever work that way, does it? Uh, when you get out into the water, uh, you see it all the time. If you watch any kind of these shows where they do like coast rescue and things like that, uh, the first thing they say when they get to a drowning man is they say, stop kicking, stop fighting, you keep fighting and you'll drown both of us. Well, listen to me, when you yoke up with an unbeliever, when there's somebody that is unrepentant in their sin, uh, they are unconvicted uh, concerning their unrighteousness, and they're going to continue living that way, and they're going to continue doing those things. That's a drowning man that's still fighting and still kicking, and you yoke up with him, and he'll drown both of you. You've got to remove yourself from some people. Remove yourself from some things. There are some places a Christian just ought never be. I know there's this mentality to nowadays, and you hear it all the time. In fact, it was on the news probably about a year or two ago. Uh, somebody, you know, they was going to start a bar church. And uh, I heard of a fella. Yeah, let, let me ask you something. We live in a society of, of stupidity. I don't mean that unkindly. But we live in a society of stupidity. We really, and sometimes you ever see somebody that's trying to pull something over on someone, and you know, and you have a pretty good feeling everybody else knows. I saw some old boy that decided he was going to start an outreach uh, in one of these big cities, and he was going to reach the strippers. That's what he said. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of think that boy may have some ulterior motives. I may be wrong. I know they need Christ. Wasn't his wife was going to reach him, it was he was going to reach him. Now, I, listen, I'm, I'm young, but I wasn't born yesterday. <laughs> There's some places, and I know, oh, we need to start to borrow churches to reach those that you won't reach them that way. You don't clean up the pig by crawling into the slop with it. It's not how it works. God draws a line. He makes a distinction. And we ought to make a distinction too. There's some places a Christian just ought never be. Just ought never be. So we see a removing taking place. Then notice, secondly, we see a resolving taking place. He says, and be ye separate. It's interesting that he doesn't say, come out from among them and separate. He says, come out from among them and be ye separate. That's a perpetual thing. In other words, God says, don't just, don't just come out from among them and then go right back out into the midst of them. But there's some things we've got to resolve about our life. There's some things as a Christian that we need to make up our mind about. You know, there's things in your life that you only make a decision about one time. One time. And you make a decision that something's wrong and it's sin and you need to stay away from it. You may make mistakes. You may fall. You may fail. But you make up your mind. You resolve that you'll keep yourself clean of that mess. And you can do it. You can keep yourself clean of it. You can steer away from it. And we need to make up our mind that this isn't just a, a, a Sunday night or Sunday morning religion and then wake up Monday morning and behave just like we did on Saturday. But when God does something in our heart and life, it, it's a lasting thing. It's a lasting thing. So we need, there needs to be some resolving taking place. Then notice thirdly, uh, look what it says. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. There's some refusing that's going to have to take place. We've got to get ourselves out of an environment. And we've got to make up our mind that we're going to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to have pure and holy lives to the best of our ability. Despite the infirmity of our flesh, by the grace of God, we're going to try to live right. But then, even when you do that, and even when that happens, I know you wouldn't believe this, but did you know that you'll still face temptation? 
you'll still face temptation. You know, uh, the Bible even says this in Luke chapter number 4, when Satan had been tempting Christ. Now, let me tell you something. Satan, I know he has no wisdom, but he is cunning. And he's more subtle than any beast in the field. And uh, could I say it this way, respectfully and reverently uh, of the language, that he is smart in a sense. He is smart in a sense. But you know, even after he tempted Christ, the Bible says that Satan departed from him for a season. For a season. Now, if there was ever a losing proposition, it was the notion that he was going to be able to deceive the Son of God. God in the flesh. He had lost every battle he had ever fought with him, but still he kept coming back. So how much more do you think you and I, that have sometimes succumbed and give in and lost some battles, how much more do you think, I heard a preacher say just uh, today, uh, that Satan never lets a bet pass him by. He never misses a bet. Any time he can try to hedge the chances in his favor, he'll always try to do it. And he's going to keep coming after you. There's some things you're going to have to refuse. There's things, and listen, I know it's Wednesday night, and I know a lot of this that you've heard before. But let me tell you something. There's still right and wrong. There's still some things that are sin. And there'll always be things that are sin. And there's some things we need to refuse. Some things that we don't even need to touch. Some things that we need to get out of our life. You say, well, what are they? Well, uh, how much time have you got? God's pretty clear about what right and wrong is. We need to not even touch it. Not even go near it. It's amazing how many Christians that God has saved them and changed them and they're supposed to be headed in the direction of the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God and the things of God that spend all their time making excuses for getting as close to the fence of sin as they can. Uh, there's no telling. You, you get on, and listen, the internet, the internet's a good thing. It's helpful, but you can really waste your time if you want to. And you get on there and you'll find a hundred thousand Christians that spend all their time trying to explain to you why it's okay to drink socially, or why it's okay to use drugs recreationally, why it's okay uh, to go to the bars, or why it's okay uh, to uh, marry someone that's not saved, or, or, or to live in, uh, 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 in sin and to uh, defile the marriage. And they spend all their time trying to show you just how close you can get without committing sin. Let me tell you something right now. That's not the attitude of someone that's sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we really fall in love with Christ, we'll hate sin the way God hates sin. God's not interested in meddling with sin, and we ought not be either. There's some things we ought to refuse. Well, what's the purpose of separation? What does it accomplish? Uh, You know, it's good to separate from some things, but you can separate from something, but if you don't separate unto something, you've not done much. There's some things that we can refuse and remove ourselves from. But the question is, where will we be when we remove ourselves? You've got to be somewhere. Well, what's the purpose? Look at verse number 17. Uh, look at the end of it. What's the last phrase? The Lord says this, and I will receive you. The whole purpose and goal of separation is to separate from the world, the flesh, sin, the devil, that we might be separated unto the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It's not enough to say, listen, if you separate just so that you can look down your nose and sit on your high horse and talk about how religious and moral you are and sermonize to everybody you come across, that's just as much of a stench in the nostrils of God as the, as the wickedness that you were formerly involved in. 
That's what makes a Pharisee. Someone that's separated from sin, but not unto God. Because you know why? You have to separate to something. So you know what happens? People that separate from sin, but not unto the Savior, they separate from sin unto self. And you know what they become? They become self-righteous. That's what makes a Pharisee. Someone that says, like the Pharisee did when he looked down at the publican that smote upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That Pharisee looked at him and said, God, I thank thee that I am not as this publican is. What was he saying? He wasn't saying, God, I thank you for how good you are. God, I thank you for how gracious you are. God, I thank you that I could be like the publican, but you've saved me and made me righteous, and it's all been you. What did he say? And by the way, it wasn't wrong for him to be thankful he wasn't like the publican. That wasn't what was wrong. The problem was he was thanking God for how good he thought himself was, his self was, in light of his own righteousness. He didn't say, God, I thank you for changing my life and making me different. He said, I thank thee that I'm the way that I am. The way that I am. That's what makes a Pharisee. The Lord says, first off, that the purpose of separation is favor with God. It pleases the Lord. He'll receive you. It amazes me how on one side we can preach on the holiness of God, but on the other side we can, we can allow the permissiveness of sin. Either God's holy or He's not. You say, oh, but preacher, what is that? where does that leave you? I'll tell you where that leaves me. A lost, unregenerate sinner that's been found and born again and justified by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where that leaves me. Someone that's been changed, but not by his own power, but by the power of God. And that thankfully has become different. Not because he's somebody, but because Christ is somebody. And he's done everything in my life worth, worth talking about and thinking about. It gives us favor with God. It pleases God. You don't receive something unless you're pleased with it. Uh, today I ordered something and uh, they asked me, they said, who do you want it shipped through? They said, FedEx or UPS? I said, well, you know, whatever's cheapest. I said, I like UPS, but it doesn't really matter. But, you know, sometimes you order something, it'll show up at your door, and they'll ask for a signature. And you look at it, and friend, it looked like it's been used as a kickball. You can tell. It's been, you know, every once in a while there'll be a video come out on the news of some, some parcel deliverer, like, kicking a package. Those are always my packages. I don't know how that is, but they always are the ones that I get. And you know why they have you sign? Because it's your prerogative to say, hey, I'm not going to receive this. I'm not going to receive this. This isn't the condition that this is supposed to be in. God says this, if you'll separate from the world, I'll receive you unto myself. I'll receive you unto myself. This isn't a matter of salvation. You say, how can you tell that? Well, because he says in a moment that he'll be a father to you. And it's conditional upon your separation. It doesn't say that he's not a father to you if you don't separate. But what he says, I'm going to act like a father with you if you'll separate. We're going to have a relationship like we ought to have. This isn't a matter of salvation. It's a matter of separation and communion and fellowship. So we see favor with God, but fellowship with God. He says, I'll be a father unto you. In fact, we see it in two respects. And I'll give you this and I'll hush. We see the promise of separation. God says two things. First off, communion. He says, I'll be a father unto you. Let me tell you something. Nobody has a relationship with God how it ought to be outside of the principle of separation. If you're not living a separated life, you're missing out on much of the communion that you'd have with the Lord. I know that seems like hard language. It seems judgmental and whatever. Call me judgmental if you want to. The righteous man judgeth all things. And uh, we're, to have, we're to judge spiritual and righteous judgment. 
But that's what God says here. Now, I'm no English major. I mean, I have, you know, people ask me sometimes, well, what languages do you speak? I have trouble with English. I'm no English major. But listen, I do understand this. If God gives a conditional promise, then there's a flip side to that coin. And if God says, if you'll do this, I'll be a father to you, the natural assumption is this. If you won't do this, God says, I won't be a father to you. I'll be at a distance from you. I'll still love you. I'll still care for you. I'll still watch over you. But we won't enjoy the relationship that we could enjoy together. We won't have the, the communion that we could have. And so many people are living unfulfilled Christian lives because the life they're living is not very Christian in the first place. Until we get right with the Lord, we won't enjoy that fellowship like we could. And the second thing is consecration. Look at this, and I'm done. He says, And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. In other words, God says this, I'll be a father to you, and you'll be a son or a daughter to me. We understand a context here, don't we? We understand this and a principle that is that is unveiled to us. God is our Father. But evidently there is a positional aspect to that relationship and a practical aspect. Because if He is positionally our Father, regardless of our actions or behavior, and that's what He said, no man shall pluck them out of my Father's hand. My Father is greater. He said, no man will pluck them out of my Father's hand. But there is a practical experiential side to that because He says, I'll be a Father if you'll do this. I think it's the same way with our behavior towards Him. Can I give you an example? The Bible says, but to as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. If you've been born again, you're a son of God or a daughter of God. You're a child of God. But Paul also said, as many as are led of the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So in other words, here's the truth. I'm a child of God no matter what I do. But if I want to act like a child of God, I'm going to have to do it the way God wants me to do it. There's a lot of us that we're a child of God. We've been born again. That's never going to change. But we don't behave much like a child of God. We don't live much like a child of God. God says, I'll tell you what, if you'll practice this, separating from sin, the flesh, the world, the devil, and it's not that complicated. You know what it really is? It's obedience to this book and to His Spirit. That's what it is. If we'll obey those two things, you know what you'll find? You'll find that you'll experience what it is to have fellowship and communion with God. And you'll live like a Christian. This thing is very difficult, but it's not real complicated. It's difficult because of our flesh, but it's not real complicated. God doesn't give us a whole bunch of rules to, to abide by. He says, instead of rules, I'm going to write my law upon your heart, and I'm going to allow you through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God to walk with me. I wonder how our walk is tonight wonder if maybe there's some things God laid His finger on and said, hey, this is something that's in your life that ought not be in the life of a Christian. I wonder this, if, and I'm going to try to say this carefully as I, as I can. Is there anything in your life that if you found out it was in my life, it'd make you lose confidence in me as your pastor? Is there anything in your life that if you found out it was in my life, or maybe your Sunday school teacher's life, Maybe the deacon's life, one of these men that's a pillar of the church. If you found out they were doing it, you'd say, oh, no, they'd never do that. I'm not saying we measure it by ourselves. But let me ask you this. Is there anything in your life that you'd say to yourself, oh, the Lord Jesus Christ, he'd never allow that in his life?